Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's show, we'll learn about a program that helps Parkinson's patients gain strength, self-confidence, and a sense of camaraderie through boxing. You'll get the details on a community forum about the issue of opioid addiction in our region. And we'll get some tips on boosting your credit score from an author who spent time in the financial industry and knows the tricks of the trade. A diagnosis of Parkinson's disease can be like a blow for sure, but there's an area program that helps patients fight back, gain strength, and meet kindred spirits who offer emotional support. Rocksteady Boxing was developed by an Indianapolis attorney who received the diagnosis and was looking for a way to improve his motor skills and strength. It took off, and it's now offered in Old Forge, Lackawanna County. We'll meet those who are involved in this endeavor. But first, we talk to Kristen Lewis, a physical therapist at Allied Services, which recommends some of their patients check out the boxing program. Parkinson's is a neurodegenerative disease in the central nervous system. And what happens is is the nerve cells that produce dopamine, which is a chemical that allows us to move freely and coordinated movements is affected, those nerves are either lost or damaged. And over time, presents with certain symptoms of what's called bradykinesia, which is slow movement, a tremor, often associated a pill rolling of the fingers. Also, postural instability, that would be your balance and your walking, stumbling, tripping, a shuffling gait pattern is often associated with it as well. Is it age-related? There are, it's a wide range. There can be very young people to a lot of um, older people. Over the age of 60, it's more prevalent. However, with today's society, they're not sure what causes Parkinson's, but it is popping up all over in um, a variety of different communities and economical and environmental areas. Let's talk about the diagnosis part or, or when someone traditionally may recognize that something is, is going wrong and what they should do at that point. It's a hard um, diagnosis to make early on. Symptoms that can come up 10 to 15 years before are loss of smell. And then the amount of dopamine that's lost has to be in a great amount in order to start to see the symptoms I had mentioned before. And so when those symptoms come on, the disease progress process is already advanced. And so the earlier that person recognizes those symptoms and sees the doctor, the better the outcome is 
um, and the earlier treatment, and it's a multidisciplinary approach. So you're looking at the medical, the doctors, and then your physical therapists, and then um, fitness, and they are also calling that exercise is the new medicine for Parkinson's. And all of the uh, evidence-based um, exercise programs like we have at Allied, including the Power Up program, which is a aerobic, progressive aerobic exercise program, and it also includes um, Parkinson's-specific exercise sizes and leading to more functional mobility, uh, such as a difficult time getting up out of a chair or a difficult time getting out of bed or in and out of bed. So um, exercise is the key. And with um, rehab, our specialized therapists will evaluate and treat the deficits associated with Parkinson's. And then it's a lifelong commitment to exercise. And that's where our program tied in with other community um, programs as far as exercise is concerned, in particular uh, rock steady boxing is an excellent adjunct to our therapy. In this situation, if, if a patient gets the diagnosis and decides to pursue a course of treatment, what do you tell them about the exercise that's beneficial to them? I guess, the, is there a way to arrest it? or you know, stabilize it, what is the benefit of the exercise? The benefit of exercise is there is no cure for Parkinson's, and as I mentioned before, it's a progressive disease. So all of the exercises are designed to slow or halt the disease process. And there's different stages in the disease process, and everyone at any stage can benefit from physical fitness exercise to combat Parkinson's disease, and that's why you know, there's so much more um, research out there into physical fitness, exercise, and a dedication to, like, lifelong commitment to those programs. It must be great, though, to have a program that isn't based upon, you know, medication, although I'm sure there's medication included, but it must be great to tell people you can help yourself through exercise because it just, to me, it just seems so promising and so simplistic. But when did they decide that there was this correlation, do you know? I think all along because um, physical fitness and you ha you're talking about all the motor um, symptoms of Parkinson's. And so any anything that in can can increase your mobility, your flexibility, your strength. I mean, overall, in general, that's what exercise does. But with people with Parkinson's, these exercises are specific to their postural dysfunction, their trembling, their falls. And so I think it's a huge breakthrough in the treatment of Parkinson's. Kristen Lewis is a physical therapist at Allied Services. The facility recommends Rocksteady Boxing to some of its patients. They then meet Kathy Reap, who runs Rocksteady Boxing Northeast PA in Old Forge. She explains its nationwide success. The original um, doctor who came up with what Parkinson's was, his name was Dr. Parkinson, and that's how it got its name. It was called back then, it was in the 1800s or something, I couldn't tell you the exact date. It was called the Shaking Palsy. It was renamed to Parkinson's when um, a different doctor said, you know, we should recognize this doctor, and shaking palsy is not a good name for it because not everybody with Parkinson's actually exhibits the tremor. Parkinson's can present with a lot of different symptoms, which is what makes diagnosis a little difficult. What is your connection to this, though? How did you get involved in it? Why, why are you here today? <laughs> 
My background is I am a physical therapist. In fact, I did work at Allied at one time over in the skilled nursing facility. But my husband got diagnosed with Parkinson's. And so when he got diagnosed and I started doing the research into what we could do for him because he's younger. When he got diagnosed, he was 54. And um, he still works full time. He still works full time to today. And I thought he doesn't really need physical therapy because he was walking fine and doing good. But I know he has Parkinson's and I know what's coming down the pike as a therapist. I've seen Parkinson's in all its stages. And I said, there has to be something out there to do now while he's healthy and he's young. And when I found out about Rocksteady Boxing, the research has shown, and this was new to me, even though I am a physical therapist, I did not realize that what the studies are showing now is that the intensity of the exercise, they call it forced intense exercise, that it's that intensity that's actually slowing down the disease process. Is your husband doing physical therapy? You said you weren't sure if he needed it, but is he? No, he's not at this point doing physical therapy. Um, My husband's primary symptom right now is the left hand tremor, his left leg tremors. He has word finding difficulties at times. Speech volume, I think, is a little bit lower. But other than that, I mean, he's actually got very good balance. You would not know looking at him when he takes his medicine and the tremor's gone, you'd have no idea that he has Parkinson's and he works full time. How do you help the people that uh, come to Rocksteady? What, what are you looking at? What kind of assessment do you do when they get here? We do a one-on-one assessment so that I can get to know them and they can get to know me. And what I'm looking for is basically where they're at in their Parkinson's progression, but also where their physical fitness level is as well and how much accommodation we would need to do in order for them to participate in a group fitness program. Once I assess someone, I put them in one of four categories, and these are not necessarily Parkinson's categories. They are basically how much assistance you would need in order to participate in this program. So like a level one, for example, needs no accommodation whatsoever. In fact, if you see a level one boxer, we don't call them patients. They're boxers, they're fighters, they're athletes when they're in our gym. We really want to stay away from the medical model while we're here. Because, you know, when you have a disease like Parkinson's, you're always at the doctors or different types of things. And it's, it's a, but a level one boxer, you would not know looking at them boxing or exercising in our gym that they had Parkinson's other than maybe you might see a tremor in their hand or some small um, sign of it. Whereas now a level four, which is our lowest level or the person who needs the most accommodation, they need to come with a one-on-one person with them to accompany them at all times during the exercise class and to help them with exercises. And then we have two levels in between that. Explain how boxing comes into this. Well, Rocksteady Boxing got started in 2006. And it was started by a man um, who was a prosecutor of Indiana County in Indianapolis. And he was 40 years old when he was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And as his Parkinson's was progressing, he was getting very frustrated. His handwriting was getting very small. His tremor was interfering. He was having a hard time being able to work his job anymore. And his friend, who was a police officer, said, you know, I go boxing at the boxing gym. Why don't you come with me? What could it hurt? So it's kind of a funny thing because Rocksteady Boxing started from somebody who had Parkinson's. And when he started boxing and and really hitting the bag and putting all his effort into this, he realized he was getting better. One day he was out to the meal with his friends and he said, look at me, my hand, I'm rock steady because the tremor wasn't there. He wanted other people to, who had Parkinson's to be able to experience what he was experiencing. So he hired a professional boxer to develop a program and they started doing it just to see if it worked for him, would it work for others? And over time, the University of Indianapolis got involved their physical therapy department started doing research saying, well, what's working here? Why is it working? When they first started, they thought it was for the younger, young onset Parkinson's. 
but people with Parkinson's were coming and saying, well, look, I've had Parkinson's 15 years, and can I come? And so they started developing the program to accommodate anybody, and they found that it was helping everybody, and they have research to show it. And that's how it got started in, um, as I said, in 2006. In 2012, Rocksteady Boxing in Indianapolis was being flooded with phone calls from people all over the country and the world saying, it's great you have it in Indianapolis, but I don't live there. I live in New York, or I live in California. I live, And um, they started in 2012 what they call training camps, and they started training coaches to start affiliates. So since 2012, when they first started that training where they could start affiliates, this year they just surpassed 550 affiliates in 50 states, and they have 28 locations in eight different countries besides the United States. Are the people coming to you? Do they know you're here, and are they flooding you now? You know, my my the increase that I've been getting has been slow and steady, and to be honest with you, I'm, I'm not that disappointed in it. I think I might have been overwhelmed if I got flooded too quickly. Um, now, after this interview, you're making it where I might get flooded. But, you know, the very nice thing is we've been growing at a steady pace, and I've been able to add um, new staff. I have a certified personal trainer who became a, um, a rock steady boxing coach. I have one of my boxers who started boxing with us um, in January of 2017. He was so impressed with the program, he went to Indianapolis, and he now is a coach. So he boxes with the 11 o'clock class, and then he coaches at the 1 o'clock class. I have um, another coach that's going to be coming on board in June, and she's a physical education teacher who's retiring, and she's gotten her boxing certification now. One of the biggest things that makes this program successful is the amazing support I get from volunteers. I have volunteers, PT students and OT students, and community health education students from Misericordia University and the University of Scranton. I have um, an adult volunteer who her father died with Parkinson's, and it's her way of giving back, and she's actually organized a, um, a donation drive for equipment for me. The support I get from all the volunteers is tremendous. This must be very personally fulfilling for you to see, though. I mean, you, you started in one realm, and now you're in another one. What, what do you see that makes you so positive and, and happy? What I really like about this program, I started out, like I said, as a physical therapist, and I think physical therapy has a wonderful place because when they're working with a, a client, they're working one-on-one, -on -one and they can specifically see what that person needs, and they can address it. But physical therapy will always end. Um, you know, it's, it's the way it is. Um, whereas this physical fitness program, and I really like what Kristen had said about um, being a lifelong commitment. I see Rocksteady Boxing being something that's a lifelong commitment. Um, there is no end date. And then what's great about it is, as they're coming to me, if I see changes, you know, because Parkinson's is a funny thing, you know, you're, you're dealing with your medications, you're dealing with doctors, it is a progressive disease. So if I'm seeing, you know, their balance isn't as good anymore, I see their posture changing, or, or even their speech, their vol um, vo speech volume, um, maybe managing saliva, uh, different things, um, I'll say, you know, I think maybe you need a tune-up. I, that's what I call it, or, or to go see a skilled therapist, physical therapist, speech therapist, and to address these issues so that you can perform even better in the classes, or to go back to their doctor. Maybe they need an adjustment in their medications. One of the things about Rocksteady Boxing is we can address pretty much anyone, any age, male or female, uh, any progression of their uh, Parkinson's based on um, which kind of class we put them in. 
the exercises are all modified. So the classes are three times a week and they're 90 minutes long, which sounds like a long time. But the reason why they're like that is because we spend time developing some spirit among the group. There's a lot of camaraderie. We do little get to know you questions. We also do stretching at the beginning to um, loosen up our joints and our, our muscles before we start. We have a warm up activity or a warm up exercise. And then we do the intense part of the exercise, which I had said is the part that they feel slows the Parkinson's. After we finish that intense part, um, then we do a cool down, we, we address, we do core exercises, we do um, stretches because now the muscles are warm, so the type of stretching we do at the end is different. We do static stretching um, while the muscles are warm to increase their flexibility. And then we always have a nice cheer at the end. Um, there's a lot of camaraderie in our group. And I think that's another thing that the boxers have told me they love. They don't feel alone anymore. They're with other people that have the same thing. They support each other. They, they can ask each other questions about what's worked for you and what have you. That's Kathy Reap of Rocksteady Boxing, Northeast PA. Cliff Melberger of West Pittston spoke to us about his participation after a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, noting his father displayed signs of the illness. Yes, he, he had a tremor all his life, and uh, I inherited I found out it was working in the Poconos, and I went to Mass with some of my Catholic friends, and coming out, it was only, I'm going to say, 14 or 15 and the priest said, I saw the Lord come out in you today because we took communion. And at that point, you had to grasp a little glass and take a sip, and my hands were shaking, and he saw that because I wasn't drinking at that age. Not drinking at this age either. But uh, that was the first time I sort of recognized. I knew I had a tremor, but I just thought everybody has a little shaking because it wasn't severe, but he diagnosed it. And then playing um, college football in high school and college, that became more evident, you know, uh, trying to get pads on and everything. You know, my friends would all help me get get pads on and lace them up and things like that. And uh, so that's that's how I recognize it. But I didn't recognize I had Parkinson's until much later on in life. And uh, just recently, what was it, a couple of years ago, we had uh, a diagnosis by a doctor that suggested my familial tremor had turned to Parkinson's. But I exercise all my life. I've always been an athlete, and uh, I walk a lot. But as I said to Kathy, I'll walk five miles is no problem for me, but it's nowhere near the intensity of these workouts. As an athlete your whole life, were you a boxer back in the day, or when they came to you and they said, boxing might help you, were you on board with that? No problem. I, I wasn't a boxer, but no problem with that at all. Tell me about when you came to this program and... Were you ready? I guess you were because you've exercised all your life. Did you say, bring it, I'll do the intense exercises? Sure. Actually, I was recommended by Allied because uh, I was up there doing uh, Loud, Big and Loud. It's another program, for, but it's not anywhere as near as intense as this. And they suggested that I come down here and get into Rocksteady, which I did. And I have a friend who operates another Rocksteady clinic out in, where is he, Detroit, Ruth? Detroit, he was a Penn State football player, and he runs a, a whole therapy thing, but he is into Rocksteady, and he, when he heard about that I was going to try this, he said, absolutely, he said, it's phenomenal, and it is. It's really, uh, it's, it's like she said, there's camaraderie, there's intense exercise, warm-up, cool-down, the whole works. What do you think it's meant for you physically? It gives you confidence that you can stop the progression, absolutely, and uh, 
I think that's, that's really what it is. It gives you a lot of confidence. And you don't want to mix the exercises, no matter what. When did you get the diagnosis? Maybe two years ago. I'm looking at my aid over there. It's about two years ago. <laughs> so we got the official diagnosis, you know. But I've always had the tremor, but it's never impaired me. But all the other little symptoms that I had that I didn't realize, you know, like taste and uh, things like that. Uh, balance is uh, maybe a little problem, but not a big problem. Um, but it's just the, the confidence that you can beat it if you work hard at it. And she works very hard at it and makes us work very hard. How about the, the taste, the, the loss of uh, the sense of taste? Was it smell first, taste second, of the other way? When did you notice that? Uh, just recently. I've never been, I eat so fast I don't taste anything. And uh, But Ruth, my, my wife and my son-in-law, they're very big tasters. You know, say, oh, that doesn't taste good. And to me, it's just quantity. Get it in as fast as I can. Then when I found out it's a symptom of Parkinson's, you know, the same thing with, with smell. You don't smell anything. So uh, Ruth will say, oh, your clothes smell sweaty. I said, geez, I don't smell anything. Must be something wrong with you. <laughs> so, it's interesting when you find out you are the problem. So it has been great. It's been great. I really enjoy it. Enjoy coming. And it's very flexible, too. Like her exercises with my shoulder, she's well aware of my injuries and, and develops the exercises to counteract that. April is Parkinson's Awareness Month. And you can learn more at the Allied Services website and the Facebook page for Rocksteady Boxing Northeast PA. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Those who know very well the impact that opioid addiction has had in northeastern Pennsylvania will gather together this Thursday to put their collective wisdom together at the Opioid Fact Forum at the Pittston Library on Thursday, April 19th, beginning at 6.30 p.m. Luzerne County Judge Michael Vaux and Coroner Bill Lisman will be there, along with addiction specialist Carmen Ambrosino and Carol Coolbaugh, a parent-turn-advocate after the death of her son Eric from an overdose. Ambrosino and Coolbaugh joined us this week at Intercom Station WILK to discuss the program. I have been in the field for uh, 45 years, and uh, again, each of those years have been cherry-flavored. I've always enjoyed this work because it's an opportunity to save lives. One of the problems in the United States is it's easier to get high than it is to get help. And so one of the things I try to do throughout my whole career is to advocate for the need for treatment and continued uh, types of treatment. The opioid problem problem from the 90s has been a major epidemic. It continues to grow. When you take a look at 154 OD deaths in Luzerne County in 2017 and close to 700 since 2010, the annual OD deaths in Luzerne County are up by about the 300 percent. These are human beings. These are not items. These are people, and uh, we need to do more. And so the opioid problem is a major issue, and that's why a special thanks to WILK and to the John F. Kennedy Knights of Columbus, uh, Council uh, 372, for sponsoring this upcoming program on April 19th from 6.30 till 8 p.m. And we uh, we hope the community comes out because they're going to learn some very valuable information on how to prevent it and how to treat it. Carol, one of these human beings was your son. 
Um, my son passed away nine years ago from a drug overdose. He was 29 years old at the time. He suffered with his addiction for 18 years. He started when he was quite young. And we did everything we thought we could possibly do for him. But um, he lost that battle, unfortunately. So I have kind of just took all that energy that I used to put into him and kind of been out there trying to educate, bring awareness, try to stop the stigma that's associated with this disease. And uh, certainly in, in your own uh, life, you did something that a lot of people didn't do. Uh, and this was nine years ago. You actually were very public about uh, why your son died. Yes. And I think that you are probably one of the the early uh, people that did this. And what, what made you make that decision? Because so often this, this kind of uh, death is left to speculation, neighbors talking, whatever. But you were very upfront about it. Why? Well, when you have a child in addiction for that many years, everybody knew he had an addiction. So I couldn't see hiding it. And I felt if I didn't talk about it, and if I was ashamed to put it out there, then how was I ever going to expect somebody else to understand it? So it was all part of that, trying to break that stigma. What happened after you did that? Did people reach out to you? Well, we did, you know, ask for donations for a cause, and we did were able to raise enough money to sponsor um, the Dare T-shirts that year, which was really a big accomplishment, I thought, for us. And um, so, yeah, we did have a lot of people that responded positively. Carmen, in in terms of um, recognizing that you have a problem, that seems to be part of what addiction actualization is, is saying, I have a problem. Are you getting more people to come forward and say they have a problem? I mean, are you working on breaking down the, the stigma of this. Yeah, one of the problems with this uh, medical disease is that you first have to fight the individual who has the disease and then you can treat the disease. Unlike cancers or, or the other uh, diseases out there, you you really begin by, by uh, treating the disease. The patient, for the most part, uh, doesn't block you. But with addiction, that occurs. Uh, denial, uh, rationalization, intellectualization, minimization, conniving behavior, the lies, the deceit, all of that that comes through. And by the time you break through that, unfortunately, uh, you do lose a valuable time. There's more and more information out there, more education out there. One of the one of the problems, uh, Sue, is that families far too often only seek advice or consultation or get on the same page when there's the problem. We need to be proactive. We need to learn about it before it strikes our homes. And it, so this is why these events of this uh, nature are real critical. People just need to clearly understand uh, this disease can happen to anyone, and it does. And so um, the information education is really critically important. I agree with you uh, 100%. And it seems to me that the way to stave this off, and I think that there is a prevailing philosophy on this throughout the, the state of Pennsylvania, is to get people to realize how dangerous this could be in the first place. In other words, whether it's done in a school setting, early in the school setting, or education, where um, I, I talk about this story all the time because it, I think it happened at your event in Kirby Park when Gary Tennis came mm-hmm. from the state and he yelled at people, throw away the medications that you have 
in your cabinet. They are dangerous. And that was my first indication that this was um, something that could help prevent this. And in the meantime, we've seen these uh, programs where you can get the thing at the pharmacy that dissolves the medication and, and whatnot. So going from that, understanding just how bad this could be if you get involved in it seems to be pivotal. Yeah, most people think that we're only talking about the street opioids, but uh, the prescription opioids are the main problem as well. The Vicodin, the Dilaudid, the Oxycontins, uh, Lamotols, the these these are very powerful chemicals, and um, heroin users uh, very often uh, begin with the pharmaceutical drugs and, and vice versa. And so these are powerful. People need to do a better job at really monitoring medicine cabinets and leaving bottles in there because um, we uh, there are people out there who will steal from medicine cabinets. Uh, doctor hopping and pharmacy shopping are, are two things which the new pharmaceutical computerization is trying to cut down on in the state of Pennsylvania, but it's still rampant. And so we need to do a better job at getting on the same page. Uh, you talk about the 4,600 ODs in Pennsylvania annually, 230 million prescriptions are being written in the United States every year for opioids. This is unacceptable. And so so we need to take a, a good look at this at this issue, not only when the problem's at our doorstep, but before it comes there. Carol, in your experience, uh, having all these medications around, is, is that enticing to some of the people that have come to you for advice in, in what they're dealing with with addiction? Well, sure, because you may not think that or believe that your child or your family isn't um, going to do that. But, you know, you have kids that are coming and visiting and using your bathroom. And believe me, they like to go through your stuff. And so, yeah, you really need to get rid of the medication you're not using. Carmen, how important is it to, and we've had people on the show, by the way, who are saying that when we try to correct a problem like this, sometimes there's an overcorrection. So I want to talk to you about some people who call our show and say they need these medicines for yes. their pain. Um, and to me, if I were in pain and I were reliant on a medication, I would be sort of resentful that maybe I couldn't get it the way I used to get it. So how do you address that other end of the problem where sometimes there's an overcorrection? I think that's a very valid point. Opiophobia is a fear of prescribing opioids. And um, this is a new phenomenon that's occurring in our society. So we've got to be careful that uh, that as we uh, we deal with, the, uh, with this issue, what we don't say to people is we're anti-opioids because that, that is not true. Uh, the these are the uh, these opioids that, that are used in a responsible way uh, moderately do have medical uses uh, cough suppressants and and um, chronic pain and things of that nature so I think that's a real critical issue that we don't want to have a campaign which says take away all opioids because they are valuable in terms of the treatment uh, uh, of pain for people who need them. What we're trying to say is that the, the misuse of them, uh, abuse of them, the overprescribing of them, uh, the pill mills, the internet that sales, the social media site uh, sales, it, um, we need to take a look at, at those particular areas. And, and what they're being cut with, Sue, the fentanyl, what people need to understand is that fentanyl 
That's an opioid. It's a Schedule II drug. Uh, that is 50 times more powerful than heroin. And carfentanil is a veterinary medicine that's used for tranquilization or for pain, if you will, for bears uh, and, and for large animals. And it, this is 100 times more potent than fentanyl. So that these chemicals being added to street opioids are, are creating a, a lot of the ODs. I also heard from a police officer in Wilkes-Barre that uh, fentanyl is making its way into marijuana. And I know people have called our show and said, oh, that's not true. But this police officer said it is true. Have you been hearing any of this? Yes? Yes, I have. Have you been hearing that, Carmen? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes, it's so, being dipped in it. Right. So regardless of, of what you're, you know, what you're buying on the street, you may um, suffer. Now, we've also heard from individuals and your, your event, Carol, by the way, is is the place where the I believe the trail is blazed. You've had so many people at your overdose awareness event that I've talked to that knew months in front of everybody what was up. And I'm glad that you do that. I give you a lot of credit for it. The Surgeon General of the United States the other day spoke about Narcan. Did you see that? I did not. Yes. Uh, yes. The Surgeon General of the United States actually advocated for families to possess Narcan. And at your event, I think that's the first place I learned about the standing order in Pennsylvania, yes, right? from Dr. Levine, yes. So talk about Dr. Levine's standing order and what it means to somebody who has an addict in the family. Well, it is um, a standing order by Dr. Levine, who is our physician, general physician yes. in Pennsylvania, and was made law by Governor Wolf that there is a, pres a prescription in the pharmacy already. You do not have to have a physical piece of paper and anyone can go in and purchase Narcan and I believe that everybody should have it and I also stress that it doesn't have to be a um, family member that has a problem if you have an older person that it's taking opiates they get confused they they can overdose just as easily as an addict so anybody that takes an opiate should have narcan carmen I, i've heard from people because i do this show every day that some people believe that narcan is a great item to have in your home if you have an addict other people are saying are you kidding me we're bringing back this person again and again and again with this narcan they're they're sort of opposed to it based upon the fact that they don't believe the person's learning a lesson how do you respond to that uh, narcan is like an epi pen it's there for when we need it these are human beings this is a, a medical disease what what's the option to let them die um, when people make that comment it absolutely uh, boils my blood that uh, one of the things we need to clearly understand is this is a, a medical disease uh, no one wants to suffer from addiction that, that if you go anywhere in the world and ask a child in elementary school what they want to be when they grow up uh, no one will ever say I want to be an addict. Um, I want to wake up in my own vomit. I want to lose my family. I want, I want to end up in a jail cell. I want to. Uh, I want to try to take my life. I want to try to uh, uh, be on page one of the newspaper. No one opts for that. Um, that should tell all of us that this is a medical disease that can happen to anyone. And so, uh, Narcan is a very valuable tool. We need to understand that 
Medication Assisted Therapies, MAT, is the new way of treating opioids. Like it or not, we need to get on the same page if we're going to reverse this trend. Was that always something that was acceptable, uh, medical assisted therapy? Was that something in the beginning of your career that people looked at as saying, oh, this replaces one thing with another thing? Did we over opposed to there that? There was some skepticism in the beginning, even by professionals, uh, including myself. Uh, we need to just get on the same page now and grow with the field and get a, a much clearer understanding. Um, are we saying that we try to challenge people to be totally drug-free? Yes, but uh, but insulin is a valuable tool in the treatment uh, of diabetes. The EpiPen is a valuable tool, uh, and, and uh, Narcan's a valuable tool. As Carol has stated, you need no prescription. You can walk into any pharmacy. If they don't have it, then you need to educate them. Walk away with, uh, with Narcan. Uh, uh, you can either spray it. Again, intramuscular, uh, but uh, to most people, they have no problem with a spray. I wanted to just speak on the um, uh, the issue that you brought up about um, reviving these people over and over mm-hmm. again. As a nurse, I have taken care of many patients that are diabetics, that are overweight, heart condition, and they come in over and over again because they do not follow their diet, they do not... Um, exercise and you know they're still sedentary they do not do what they're supposed to do toward their disease but we still treat them every time they come in. I think that's a great point. And sometimes we lose our way. And I think people, they're just angry a lot about this. And I, I, I understand. I get it. Yeah. I bet you were angry at points at, when you were involved in this with Absolutely. your family because it's maddening. You think you make progress. You haven't made any. And it's it's a terribly frustrating thing. I think sometimes people do react out of that frustration that they have. Why can't you just get this? Why won't you get better? So I, I understand that as well. Yes. And, you know, they do do bad things. I'm first to admit that. But they are under the influence of something that is controlling their brain. And I believe my son was much more than what his addiction was. Carmen Ambrosino and Carol Coolbaugh will be part of the Knights of Columbus Council-sponsored Opioid Fact Forum at the Pittston Memorial Library on Thursday, April 19th from 6.30 to 8 p.m. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. It's good to learn tips about improving your credit score from someone who spent time in the industry that devises that metric and has the tenacity to tell the rest of us about it. That would be Anthony Davenport, whose book, Your Score, An Insider's Secret to Understanding, Controlling, and Protecting Your Credit Score, was the topic when he joined us recently. Anthony, sometimes I think people feel helpless about this score. That's because no one ever learned about credit scores in school or from their parents, and credit is being used now to determine everything. Most employers are looking at credit. They're using FICO scores now to determine your home and auto insurance rates, yet no one was told what the perfect credit profile looks like, 
how many credit cards they're supposed to have, what kind of balances to put on them. There's so much misinformation. So that's why I wrote this book, was to really kind of pull back the curtain and say, this is how the game is played. Okay, Mr. Oz, why did this become the thing to do, though? What what made this so vital and crucial? Were people in cahoots to make this happen? How did it come to be? Yes, and it's a very simple explanation. It's all about money, because now they can use a credit score to put everyone in the same boat and say, if you don't have exactly what we want, we're going to charge you more. So the average American has a credit score of just beneath a 700. But if you have that score, over the course of your lifetime, you're going to pay several hundred thousand dollars extra in interest versus someone who has an immaculate A-plus score. So it's a big deal. (laughs) What's an immaculate A-plus score? 740 or higher, and there's a profile behind it. They want you to have the right mix of credit cards and other lines of credit and have the right age and all things that they don't want you to know. <laughs> it's definitely something they don't want you to know how it works. I hardly ever talk about this, Anthony, but this girl right here has over 800. That is a sexy credit score. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about how employers can justify using this, and and how do potential employers gain access to your credit score? In many cases, you give employers the right to pull a credit report on you. They're not supposed to be able to see your score. They're not supposed to take that into account. How... Or, or why that's used, I couldn't tell you because there's no correlation between uh, an employee that has a low FICO score and, you know, the, the fact that they're going to be late to work or anything like that. And there's no correlation to say someone with a low credit score is going to be a worse driver, but it gives them the means to say, we're going to charge you more despite the fact that, I mean, a lot of my clients make millions of dollars. They're not a risk to not pay a bill, but now they can say, ooh, because of this unknown thing in the system, we can charge you extra money. It's so crazy. Let's talk a little bit about some easy-peasy ways, Anthony, to get this score to be a little bit better. And, and, and how can it rise, either by, what, tens or hundreds, if you do go in there and you take a serious look at it? And you're entitled to get a free one every every year. Is that right? You can, but, I mean, this, this is a whole other part of the book. But okay. the credit scores that you can get as a consumer are not the same as lending institutions use. So you have to get the real deal report. I actually... I made it a pretty hefty part of the first chapter on how to get your hands on it and how to read it. But then how to improve it, it's going to surprise you, but 65% of your FICO score has nothing to do with whether you pay your bills on time. And the 65% is what's easier for you to to control. So if you learn that stuff, like paying a credit card balance down here or there, that can make a profound impact on your score in a pretty quick fashion versus if you have late payments and blemishes, you know, I teach you how to fix those too, but that takes longer time. Okay. How many credit cards should the average individual have in order to look attractive in their credit score? So I recommend that you have between five and seven total trade lines, including credit cards, like mortgages, auto loans, uh, you know, with a couple credit cards mixed in. And you want them open at least two years, but the longer the better. They're kind of like friendships that can vouch for you. Five to seven total, including your mortgage and your car? 
yes. yes. Most oh. Americans have 11, which oh. is too many. They like you not knowing this stuff. Okay. And because I, I thought if you had, say that you did have 11, but you were meticulous about them and you did pay on time, why is that still considered to be bad news? In some cases, it can be because then you have the ability to rack up a lot of debt very quickly, oh. and they don't want you to do that. They're afraid that if you have you know, $100,000 available on your credit cards, maybe all of a sudden you run into an issue and you, you need to use all of it, you know? Okay, so they're just worried that you have the potential to quickly uh, escalate it. Now, someone wants to know, if a student has a bad mark on credit and the loan company won't remove it until the loan is paid, what can the student do? The student is paying the loan. So they're behind on their student loans currently, or? No. They, they have so a bad mark. They're paying the loan, I guess, in a timely manner, but uh, they won't take the mark off even though they're current? Yeah, there's a lot of different options, and it really depends on, on you know, where they got the loan from and then what their current status with them is. Believe it or not, if, you are, if you've had issues with a loan that's backed by the federal government, that's the best kind to have because they're the most willing to work with you and say, hey, we don't want to hurt your ability to repay us at some point in time. So if we can correct and rectify your credit, uh, that may help you be able to you know, get other debt and be able to pay us off faster. So I have a, I have a whole chapter on how to deal with student loans because that's something that virtually all of us have to deal with now. Okay. And when we go uh, to get a, get a mortgage for instance, Anthony, uh, what, what should we be anticipating when we go for that? I mean, what's going to help us the most when we're uh, a new home buyer and it's, it's our first time out? And that's a huge amount of money that you have to get sometimes. So what, what should you be doing in order to prep for that? First and most important thing you have to do is a minimum of 90 days in advance, you have to get your hands on the same credit report that the lender is going to look at. And it's not the one that you can get from the credit bureaus. It's not the one that comes from Credit Karma or from FreeCreditReport.com, even though the commercials are cute. You have to get the real report. And then, you know, I have like a 90-day credit slam to help people get prepped for it so that you get the very best rate on your mortgage because it could save you a couple hundred bucks a month on an average loan if you make sure that your credit score is beautiful and looks the part before you go in for that mortgage application. Does I, I mean, mine is really good. And even when I did, I had to get money for my kids to go to college. And I didn't think my loans were that, I, I didn't think my rates were that great. Is there a way that I could say to them, are you looking at the right thing here? Yeah, you can. you can first obtain the real report because... What you may be looking at is not the same thing that they're looking at. So get the real report, learn how to read it, figure out how it needs to be positioned when you're going to apply for it. Because in many cases, they're not giving you the best rate, even though you have a high likelihood of paying them back. What about medical debt? How does that figure into your life? Oof. We, we hope that Canada invades and gives us their free health care because... <laughs> Our system is not not right, but at any rate, it affects 35% of Americans. We have medical collections, and it's usually people that have health care. And another thing that I'll, I'll tell you on how to deal with this, almost everyone deals with medical collections incorrectly. If they're on your credit report, the worst thing that you can do is simply just pay it 
because it's like admitting guilt and it plummets your credit score and makes it look like it's a brand new item. How that makes sense, Sue, it I have no idea, no but that's the way <laughs> that's the way it works. So the whole the whole thing doesn't make sense. So how are you supposed to handle that? Uh, well, I I had to lay out almost an entire chapter of the book to deal with collections because it depends on what type of collection it is and how it originated and what you say to them. But um, for starters, you don't want to pay the collection unless they're willing to delete it from the record like it never happened. And you have to arm wrestle them. And, you know, I arm you with some ammunition on how to do it because almost everyone faces this issue at some point. It is exhausting, isn't it, Anthony, to be a warrior on behalf of yourself? Well, you know what? I was a banker for 10 years almost. So this is my way of atoning for my sins uh, by helping consumers. So <laughs> I provided a guidebook on how to how to deal with the baddies. How do your colleagues feel about that? Do they think that you're telling tales out of school or no? Uh, like other people in the credit industry? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I have the benefit of working with people that even if I hand them the book and say this is how to deal with things, they're not going to do it on their own. They pay people to do that. So other people in the industry are happy that I'm sharing credit knowledge and talking about the systems, but they're not so happy I'm giving away the secrets. <laughs> Anthony Davenport is the author of Your Score, an insider's secrets to understanding, controlling, and protecting your credit score. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.